Welcome to what looks to be a packed episode of This Week in the CLE, where the people who bring you the news of Northeast Ohio provide their insights into that news. It's a weekly podcast discussion by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and we're starting the podcast with columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, and reporters Rich Exter and Bob Higgs. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. We start this week with an intriguing and surprising announcement about a new chief of staff by Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish, who for the past 18 months has been beset by controversy and departures from his cabinet. Many in Greater Cleveland have worried that Budish, with three and a half years left in his second term, would be paralyzed by the controversies, especially because he lacked a strong chief of staff. Then he comes forward with Bill Mason, who was the longtime Cuyahoga County prosecutor and remains a Democratic Party power. The choice was surprising because one of the chief causes of Budish's pain is current county prosecutor Mike O'Malley, who was Mason's right-hand man, which makes the choice of Mason pretty bold. Bob, what did Budish say about the Mason selection? Budish went after him. He sought him out and had to persuade him to take the job. What Budish told us was he thinks Mason's background fits very well with the key things he needs to have addressed in his administration. Uh, You've got his experience as a prosecutor and experience with dealing with jail crowding and that'll help make him a point person on jail problems. He had he was one of the early people who was pushing for wind power out of the lakes, and sustainability is a big uh, focus of the Butish administration. He clearly knows the county government. He was a big pusher for the charter change and actually helped write the charter. And, and Butish thinks he'll be able to step in and, and really help stabilize things. Mark, Mason was making a lot of money in private practice. Why does he take this job? Well, only he can answer, but I can tell you what the job does for him going forward. It puts him back uh, very clearly in a, in a place where he's really comfortable and enjoyed, and that's in county government. Um, it gives him a little more uh, power in the political machine. The county is full of employees that are representatives of their, their neighborhood Democratic Party. Those connections uh, are always beneficial. Uh, he also is taking a good, healthy salary, an unprecedented salary of 225000 for a chief of staff job. It kind of makes you wonder what that leaves for Armin Butish to do beyond cutting ribbons. <laughs> he uh, also you know, gets PRS time, and that could be beneficial depending on where he is in, in close to hitting his max. So those, those figures, are, your pensions are based on those final three years. But you know, I think I jump in on, on Bob's point. Let's not diminish the fact that a chief of staff has to be tough and sometimes a jerk. And and Bill can do that role, having been so active politically. And that will make a difference in getting people to move on a position, a policy. Um, I know it sounds kind of flip, but the reality is that's what chief of staffs do. And I think that is a failure that Butish has had prior with the chief of staffs that didn't have that. That's the one, I think, bonus that they're getting out of it. Well... The, the question is, though, does Budish actually give him the latitude to do it? Because if administrators can go around Mason to Budish and undermine him, you know, Mason won't put up with that. He's not that kind of guy. I would think that conversation took place before the appointment. Uh, now, Mason's going to have to start fending off uh, detractors. I'm already, you know, hearing about uh, Democratic Party leaders like uh, Attorney Spoge Chandra, who's not happy about it. We got... Eastside Democrats that felt blindsided. 
Uh, we got Cleveland Stonewall Democrats, an influential advocacy group that has written a letter to Armin Butish within 24 hours asking him to dump Mason because they charged that Mason was not supportive of certain uh, gay and lesbian rights as a prosecutor uh, related to domestic benefits. And we are waiting to hear back from, from Mason on that point. So I think this it's going to be fun to watch. This is a great appointment. You know, Bob, you mentioned that uh, one of the things that qualifies him as a prosecutor, although there's really nothing you do in the prosecution side of that job that applies to the administrative job. And as prosecutor, uh, we, uh, our editorial board, and uh, criticized him heavily based on stories we did about him overcharging defendants and, and very seriously politicizing his office. So many of his prosecutors were in elected office. But... But none of that really applies here because no. this is about being an administrator. It's what Mark said about about being a jerk. I don't think Mark was calling Bill Mason a jerk. He's saying he has the the fortitude to to demand action. So the most important place we have in the county right now is the jail. It's seven months later after the marshal service came out with a report portraying absolutely inhumane conditions. We have seen very little sign anything's changed. What do we think Mason's first steps are to get that fixed, and will he be successful? Well, I, he has a keen sense of how they're supposed to work. When he was prosecutor, he got into things like making uh, defendants able to get out on their own recognizance so you didn't have overcrowding and things like that. I suspect what he's going to do is he's going to go in there, he's going to look at the findings from the latest state reports and say, we've got to fix this now. And, and start doing it systematically. Well, it's not really rocket science, right? you yeah. got a checklist already. You just should be going through and, and checking the boxes. And for some reason, at least in the public sphere, we can't see evidence that that's happened. Do, but, but, Mark, based on what you described about his power as an administrator, do you think he has what it takes to get that fixed? Well, the, the, the same thing that's a strength can work against him, and that is enemies. And the county's full of them, and I think that's why... I think we have to wait and see how this uh, appointment works out. Does he have enough, more friends than he does enemies? Because people in the county work against you if they don't like you. The one area that he definitely had friction as prosecutor was with judges. Because back then, this, we're going back years, the middle of the last decade, he was doing some things to try and do early versions of court reform. Uh, and the judges really didn't like it. I mean, he had a lot of difficult, difficult times with them. So they're part of this whole justice center jail reform It'll be interesting to see if he can get through that. One other factor that could help him here is he's not coming in with somebody who's been in trenches, the, the head of the jail, too. There's a new jail administrator there that came in from outside of the county that apparently when the state came in, they had good reviews of her initially, and he may be able to forge a team there without having a whole bunch of baggage from the tenure getting in the way. All right. Well, on another front in county government and the jail, the county council introduced legislation to put before voters a charter change that would return us to an elected sheriff who ultimately oversees the jail. Um, you know, because when we had an elected sheriff, that went well. Can you say Gerald McFall? Uh, Bob, what's the thinking here? Uh, the two councilmen, uh, Brady and Gallagher, who are pushing it, suggested on the front end, we need some independence, that there's problems with the jail and perhaps an independent sheriff could better monitor this thing. He wouldn't be subservient to the county executive and 
maybe that's one way of dealing with some of these problems we're having over there. Um, and it's going to be an interesting discussion. Though. But the whole premise of that is that the structure is flawed and it's not that the people are flawed. The right. editorial board of Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer have already blasted the council for this, saying you're not doing your job. That once the jail report came out, you should have set up weekly rigorous hearings where you demanded answers of how this happened and demanded reforms. They haven't done any of that. And now it's almost like, let's wash our hands, let's put it on the voters who are going to be upset because of how bad things are and change the structure. The government's only only 10 years old. Did council members offer much in the way of explanation for this? Did they offer any real justification? They haven't had at it yet. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to go to the... They referred it to committee. It's going to be committee of the whole, so it's everybody on council. Should be an interesting discussion. League of Women Voters has already thrown down on it, though, and they're going to be at that committee, I'm sure, and said, this is a bad idea. I think the, the president said, think before you act, and, and issued all the kind of warnings of, about what we had with Gerald McFall coming back again. Uh, a fiefdom being created, essentially. You know, Mark, uh, Mike O'Malley, the prosecutor, is in favor of this. But, but as I've talked to people since this came up this week, I haven't found anybody that is not coming down on the position that this isn't a structure problem, it's a people problem. Um, is that? Do you think that message gets through to the voters, or do you think the voters will just vote for change because they're sick of what they're seeing? No, I think it, this is, it has a, a very strong chance of, of passing. Once, if it gets to before the voters, uh, part of that is we got to remember there are a lot of Democrats out there that were not supportive of of the reform because of how entrenched they are in the idea that we need these offices, uh, we want these offices uh, because there is that individual patronage. Uh, there, you know, was a real strong push from um, African American leaders because they were worried that this reform would leave fewer offices and, and, and um, you know, opportunities for African-American candidates. So I think that is still under the surface. And then given what we're seeing, that it is a mess, um, I think people would say, yeah, what's, what's wrong with adding one more office? An independent well, office that could stand up against a county executive. This is what you're going to hear. Although where, where does that end? Then you do the auditor, then you do... The other thing is, the I, first... I the first African-American sheriff we ever had, right, was appointed. There, there was never an elected African-American sheriff. And so for, for, for the, the voters on the east side, I would think that might resonate, that this actually might reduce the chances. Well, I think we're, you know, because the hearings are about to take place on this, we will get a sense of what that council is thinking um, and how they will promote it and defend it. And uh, we'll have to follow that up in a podcast. I know we will. I'm sure we will. From county government to state government, first we had Governor Mike DeWine's proposed budget, which included no tax breaks. Then we had the Ohio House budget, which included some tax cuts, but also the end of the film tax credit that spurred the movie business. Now we have the Ohio Senate version, Jane. Are they trying to expand the tax cut fervor? <laughs> well, they went deeper on the income tax cuts, but they brought back a big tax break for business. That is, um, people who are self-employed um, get their first $250,000 of income is exempt. And um, the House knocked that down to 100000 But the Senate uh, is fully restoring that, uh, leading the House Speaker to already take a jab at this new budget, saying you're taking from the poor and giving to the rich. Um, that and some other things. They also uh, 
reduced the amount that the House wanted to give to wraparound services for at-risk children, school children, and um, they're directing some of that to fast-growing affluent uh, school districts and private school vouchers. Which is where uh, the criticism where the, came from yeah, about from robbing our the house poor. speaker who happens to be from Perry County where um, a school district there was the subject of the whole school funding case uh, about all the inequities in the way we fund our schools. So um, there's some battle lines being drawn for sure. But the and the Senate ultimately they want to <clears throat> cut the income tax much more steeply than the House, right? Right. It's four uh, percent each year, a total of eight percent. Um, so and uh, you know, Rich did a very interesting analysis about this that he can. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that in home. a minute. Um, you mentioned Householder taking the shot. He and, and the Senate President Larry Alpuff don't get along. The next step is they get into a conference committee where they have to rectify this. Often that's done fairly quietly and underground. Oh, yeah. Are we expecting this to be more fireworks as they, they clash? I, I think those two issues are going to be the big sticking points. For instance, you know, we've talked about the film tax credit where they have uh, opposite views on that. But that's only $40 million a year, you know, in a $69 billion budget. I think the two things that they're going to butt heads on are the um, this business tax break and the um, the wraparound school services. What's the deadline? Uh, they have to get a budget signed by the governor by June 30th, the end of the fiscal year. So, so not, not a lot of next time. week, I believe, the Senate is supposed to, um, uh, you know, unveil the, uh, you know, what they would call the omnibus amendment and... Okay. Take it from there. Every time we get one of these budget proposals, our data expert, Rich Exner, dives in. And Rich, you've been focusing on the tax situation, as Jane said. How's it evolving? It's interesting. As we, we became so used to the last several years talking about how much the tax cut would be. And when Governor DeWine opened up with his first budget, he said, uh, we've had tax cuts. It's time to start investing in things. And um, you got to keep in mind that since 2005, we had a pretty much steady stream of cuts in the income tax. Your, your Ohio income tax bill is only about two-thirds now of what it would have been if the tax rates had been in place. So DeWine was a different position, but that lasted, what, all of a couple of weeks, and, and they started cutting. The, the first one, as Jane mentioned, was like 4%. Now we're up to 8%. And, and uh, so it doesn't it, it doesn't look like a question now whether there's going to be a tax cut. It's a question of how much it'll be, and, and maybe when Householder and Opoff start going back and forth on that, it'll be settled. When uh, John Kasich first ran in his in his first run for governor, he had he had placed out there that he really wanted to abolish the state income tax. We've had steady, steady years of years of cutting. Do we get to the point where that actually becomes a possibility? It wasn't while Kasich was here, but will we get that close? Well, they haven't figured out the math on that yet because still, they always like to. The people who don't like income taxes always like to talk about the top rate, and it's gone from. You know, beginning of this, even before Kasich, at seven point five percent down to full, uh, just about five. Um, in reality, I think the tax for most people, on average, is you know in that two to three range. Uh, uh, when you figure in all the rates, can, can they trim off another bit? It's it's a lot of fighting going on now to to knock this another eight percent off, but that's just a little bit. So they're going to have to find money elsewhere. To, to, do to do it, to just get totally get rid of totally, it's going to be pretty hard. Jane, I, I think there's no way that they're not going to have a tax cut because even the governor who started off saying he wants to invest and he did not propose any cuts, 
uh, is now saying, oh, well, we're not that far apart. We don't have monumental differences. And I think he recognizes it, that the, the lawmakers want this, and that's the way it's going to be. It seems like even Householder uh, recognizes there are, there's only so far you can go on some of this because his big fight here on this business tax cut where if you work for yourself, you don't have to pay uh, tax on $250,000 of income, but if you work for somebody else, you do. That's like a $10,000 tax bill for the people working for somebody else. And initially, we were told years ago that this was going to spur jobs in Ohio. Well, what they're debating between now on 100000 and 250000 that's like $6,500 tax bill. I don't know anybody that's going to go out and hire more people because you save $6,500 on taxes. All right. Well, while the two houses may not agree right now on the budget, they largely have agreed year after year after year on laws to loosen gun rights in Ohio. We've had a long series of laws, all of which made it easier to get, carry, and use a gun. That's happened largely because the Republicans have had an overwhelming control of the legislature. Now some Democrats are pushing back with an appeal to voters. Jane, what's that about? Uh, There's a group called Ohioans for Gun Safety. It's uh, activists from around the state. They're taking the approach, you know, they're not going um, whole hog here for gun control. They, because of the public's overwhelming support for for what they say are common sense background checks, uh, they're proposing a background check law by initiated statute um, that would close the loophole for online sales and gun show sales, and um, which seems like just common sense, it, right? It does. I mean, As I said, really, the public there's overwhelming support for that. Um, but will the legislature consider it? Who knows? What the the process is? They they collect these initial thousand signatures. If uh, legally everything checks out, then they collect uh, one hundred and thirty three thousand more, and that forces. Um, well, it's supposed to force the legislature to consider it. If they don't act, then they collect another right. one thirty three thousand, and um, they can get it on the ballot. And they hope to do that. Uh, 2020 or 2021. Um, but I don't know. This legislature, as you said, has a history of loosening gun laws. I have a feeling they will just let that sit. Rich, you recently recently traced the gun trajectory in Ohio. What are some of the standout laws over the years that you were most surprised by? It's maybe most surprised is how far we've come because you used to not be allowed to carry a concealed weapon in Ohio. And the way they got that through the first time was, well, we'll have all these restrictions. You can't take them in schools and bars and everything. And, and now that's evolved. To, that's not the debate anymore. The debate is whether there should be any restrictions on it. So I, th- I think the, the incremental change is maybe more surprising than any one thing that happened. We spoke about the different budgets proposed for the state a moment ago. The House version really is the product of Speaker Larry Householder. Jane Andrew Tobias and her Columbus Bureau did a huge takeout on Householder and how he's doing in this second stint as Speaker after he ruffled so many feathers in his first stint back in the day. What were what were Andrew's basic findings in his profile? Well, that um, Larry Householder is getting praise from both sides of the aisle, which definitely didn't happen um, last time around because he's been more inclusive. It, he The Democrats helped propel him to where he is, so he's... Um, He's listened to a lot of their requests and incorporated their initiatives. Um, however, you know, uh, there are still some, and a lot of people wouldn't speak on the record about this, but who feel that it's the same pay-to-play culture, you know, case in point, the whole First Energy Solutions uh, nuclear plant bailout that 
he is pushing, you know, after being the beneficiary of a lot of uh, campaign contributions and, you know, riding in First Energy's private plane to the Trump inauguration. And so um, the it, it just sort of raises the question, is he the same guy? Um, I think many people would acknowledge he's he's less rough around the edges and he, he works better with people, but it's a, it's a good piece. Check it out on cleveland.com. After the break, we're going to talk about uh, governor Mike DeWine's view on the Cuyahoga County jail. It's this week in the CLE. We'll be back. The movers and shakers of Ohio start their mornings each weekday by getting up to date on state house news and politics through cleveland.com's capital letter newsletter. If you want to know what they know as they make the decisions that affect your life, subscribe to Capital Letter at cleveland.com backslash newsletters. Best of all, it's free. We're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, reporters Layla Atassi, Emily Bamforth, and Adam Faris. Adam, let's go to you first. We've been talking for nearly a year about the controversial Cuyahoga County Jail. We've had a bunch of inmates die there. We've had the U.S. Marshal Service issue a report portraying horrendous conditions there. We've had an absolute inability to get it under control. Now we have the Ohio governor's office doing something I don't think it's ever done before, getting involved in a local jail issue. What is Mike DeWine saying and doing? So what he's saying is um, they needed to make sort of more widespread reforms throughout the state, and they did so by looking at the issues at the Cuyahoga County Jail. So what he wants to do here is come in and do inspections every 30 days, which has never been done before uh, in the history of the state. That's uh, um, Usually it's just one per jail per year. They do an inspection. They're going to do one every 30 days. And he said they're going to continue doing that until he feels comfortable with the direction that it's going. Um, and he also threatened for, to use a kind of a little-known statute to where they can the state can essentially file a lawsuit forcing a jail to comply with their standards, with which, the state standards. Which is generally what you expect the federal government to do because it's civil rights. It seems odd that Governor DeWine is getting so interested in this when Attorney General DeWine mm-hmm. did not. So, you, you know, you do wonder, if is a political, big-time Republican, Democratic stronghold county, um, is, is there... You also have Dave Yost, the Attorney General, Republican Attorney General, leading this investigation. Is there any thought there might be politics involved in this, or is this really about we got to get this right? Uh, it could be a little bit of both. I think a lot of people think that yeah, that was strange. But the other thing about you know Dewine being an Attorney General before becoming becoming the governor, the the jails, the Bureau of Adult Detention, the ODRC, that's under the governor's purview not the attorney general's office so they make they make the calls the governor makes the calls on the on the jails and the uh what happens at the state jails and prisons i think when you look at the report there's a couple of lines of liability that do lead to a governor's office and i think uh dewine is being practical about it we know that the then you know under Kasich's administration that jail uh, or correction department of corrections said things were okay in Cuyahoga County. If I'm governor, do you let that stand? I mean, well, we know they're not. Eight people died. So uh, DeWine certainly is a, a practical politician. He sees, you know, this is an issue. He's done it on uh, other health care issues. Um, he's going to jump in. Yeah, there's 
a, a political benefit, but I think you can't, uh, you know, get away from that line that leads back to that Department of Corrections. They let this go, and we also know that we all we now know that Cuyahoga County was resisting efforts by that same department to offer some help uh, more recently. So he he's kind of involved. And well, and it feels a little bit like they're covering for that, that, that they blew it so badly that they're coming back now saying, well, we offered help when you wanted to merge jails, you turned us down. Um, there have been previous examples, though, of poorly run county jails, and In the governor's Franklin office county never got involved before, right? I mean, didn't Columbus have a pretty serious jail problem that they were left to solve on their own? Yeah, uh, actually, the the U.S. Uh, attorney's office in the Southern Dith- District ended up getting involved in a lawsuit there where um, the corrections officers in Franklin County were using tasers on inmates left and right. I think, I, I forget how many there were, you know, how many cases there were, but they got involved. And that eventually led to, I think, a couple, $100,000 worth of lawsuits they had to pay out. And it's also kind of forcing them to build a new jail now. I mean, 10 years later, they're still trying to to fix it. So, But no one got involved with the state. Well, let me ask it this way. Um, that report that came out from the Marshal Service is more than six months old now, right? It, where it's about six. No, it's more. It came out in November. And even though there may be progress being made at the jail, we certainly haven't seen it. We did have another death this year. Is it possible that DeWine is disgusted by the lack of progress and is basically using the the bully pulpit of the governor's office to compel Cuyahoga County to fix this? Yeah, I think that's pretty much what he was saying. There was issue upon issue. We've known about it now for, I mean, six months, eight months, a year, however it's however long it's been, and they're still, you know, overcrowding. They're still red zoning, which is a forced lockdown of inmates for no punishment reasons. Um, and we just had another inmate die last month. So I think people are starting to get a little bit fed up with um, the lack of progress there. And the county really didn't give us any or much of a reaction to this, right? You didn't, At all. They basically left it to wine to speak for himself. Yeah. Um, nothing at all. I don't, we haven't heard from them, I think since either late January or February on any kind of progress they're trying to make. So, and and at the state of the County, he offered some information about red zoning, but we really haven't seen a list of the things they've solved that were problematic. Okay. Let's switch gears. Akram Boutros, the CEO of Metro health systems made a quite moving speech at the city club Friday. The general topic was the health of the community. But it was not really about medicine, and one of his solutions to what ails us struck a chord with us at Cleveland.com because it's a solution that we are four square behind. Layla, you covered the speech. What's the solution, and why is it significant? Well, of course, it's near to dear, near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's Open Table, which um, you know is a mentorship program that matches groups of volunteers uh, with people and families in need. Uh, it's a national model that has been a, a adapted to fit the needs of many different populations across the United States. Here in Cleveland, we first saw it uh, arrive uh, with a, um, a local social worker who applied it to um, a group of you know young people who were aging out of the foster care system. And after we started to write about it about a year ago, it kind of caught fire. Akram Boutros took notice and adopted it as a, as a method that you know Metro Health would would take on to to help the families living around, uh, you know, in the neighborhood surrounding its main campus. 
Um, and so we, of course, signed up to do it. And I've been following along, um, you know, readers have been following along the journey of my particular table of, at, of at mentors Metro at Metro Health. And, um, and he encouraged people to start signing up. And as, as of today, since his speech, a couple dozen people have actually signed up to start training on, on tables, uh, as early as July. So it's, it's pretty exciting. And he called on any company with more than a hundred people right. to sponsor at least one table because right. he thought we could reach a thousand people, um, going forward. Um, what were the other highlights of his speech? He went well beyond that. Well, you know, it was really a call to action to the entire community. And my favorite line of his speech was, there are no neighborhood problems. These are our problems. Uh, to those in healthcare, he said, we have to stop applauding our hospitals for their cutting-edge facilities and for the prestige of the people who work inside those facilities. And we have to start recognizing the difference between medical care and health care. And healthcare, he said, begins in the community where childhood trauma is a leading cause of so many of the health crises that plague us. Um, he pointed to uh, the ACEs research, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, those who score high on this particular ACEs survey, uh, meaning that they've suffered as a child from abuse or neglect or scarcity, or they lost parents to prison or death or divorce, things like that, um, that they're at a far higher risk of developing obesity and a number of other health issues. And research shows that just one strong adult in the li life of that person can reverse a lot of the, the damage that has been done by that sort of trauma in their life. And so that kind of fed into um, the, the initiatives that, that Metro Health has been pushing forward, it, Open Table among several others. And uh, he called upon everybody to become engaged on that level. Metro Health is in a very unique position as the safety net hospital for Cuyahoga County that cares for people regardless of their ability to pay. So their their position to to be a leader on in this uh, charge is. Uh, Akram sent us a draft of the speech a few days ahead of time. I think it was to clue us into the open table so that we could be there. And a few hours after you read it, you sent me a note saying you just reread <laughs> it and it struck you as pretty great, even standing ovation great. And I thought, well, City Club, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then I was surprised sitting there when that's exactly what happened. Why do you think this was so well received? Well, it it was so conversational for one. I mean, he was speaking right into the hearts of the audience. And I felt it as I was just reading it. At first, you know, when you sent it to me, I, I gave it the once over read and then, uh, you know, gave it a deeper look. And, and I felt, you know, the butterflies. I got excited about it. I mean, of course, I'm volunteering with Open Table. So I know what he's talking about. Um, I know I, I see it every day. I see the effect that our table members have in the life of this young person who we're mentoring. And so I felt like if we, if, if he can deliver it with that tone, and he did, I mean, he executed it perfectly. He really struck the note um, of, you know, I, I, uh, if I've offended you, I'm not sorry. <laughs> he was that, that uh, blatant with his message. And it really didn't, um, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't uh, try to, to uh, sugarcoat anything. He was, he was really direct. And um, I think that's what, what garnered him that very rare standing ovation moment. Great scripts are made better by great actors, and, and I think he relished that role. I mean, he really brought it to life, and, and a lot of this message has to do with him personally. We've had other CEOs of that same hospital, and they couldn't, <laughs> yeah, couldn't tap true. in to, this, very, you know, to this, this point and its message and its, 
and its role. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there. The the veiled swipe at hospitals, arm arms race. You know, who can build more, better technology? Let's you know have multiple multiple MRIs competing within neighborhoods. We know this is a driver of healthcare costs. It doesn't necessarily make people healthier, and I think that's what he's getting at. Um, he's got the right personality. That made a difference. I watched the speech uh, live. Uh, and he's just, you know, he was better than most politicians with a teleprompter. You know, we, we showcase pretty much the entire staff on this, this podcast, and I don't think there's a reporter in the room that hasn't written in, about some facet of what he's talking about. I mean, we've written about opioids. And we've written about the violence that results from these conditions. He, he's laying it out that we as a community have a responsibility, but what's the next step? I mean, what... What, how, what is the, other than having lots of people sign up for Open Table, a really good thing, what are the other things that could come of this speech to tackle the problems that he made in his call out? Well, it's, you start with the, the neighborhood element, right? That the, these are, let's drill down into what's causing this. So, I mean, you have to see other organizations step up and try to attack each little problem that they're best at attacking and, and now the you know the problem with any of these great speeches is yeah after the buzz wears off is is there enough out there he has to run a hospital he can't you know go in but metro is doing it in the buckeye neighborhood right uh layla can talk a bit about what their recent announcement and their plan for uh you know, really trying to get health care to the people and work around the schedules and the challenges that poor people face he's doing his part you want to add on that, Layla? That- oh, yes, just that that Buckeye facility has been suffering mightily with with uh, the number of people who just no-show their appointments. And it's because there is such a strain in their lives that, you know, one of the administrators who I spoke to about, about this said it's like crossing the desert to make it to an appointment when the whole world is crashing down around you. And so their solution to this, which they've tried so many things, this is kind of their last best effort here, is to have to move all the medical providers up to the second floor and open up the first floor of that Buckeye facility to other wraparound services. And they're giving it the space for free to any agency that could demonstrate that for a year, at least a year, they can commit to serving that community, that very impoverished community on the east side. And so they're just opening their doors. Uh, they just opened yesterday, I think, on all of those wraparound services. And we've got the Rape Crisis Center there and the food bank and... And, and the idea is that it would make it worth someone's effort, that great effort of crossing the desert, to come out to that facility, to get all those other resources and their needs met, and then maybe also see their doctor. I think you can see this popping up pretty much all over the place. Governor Mike DeWine put more money towards schools in his education budget um, to try and account for the wraparound services that schools are using money for. So... Schools are taking the money that could have been used on classroom instruction and using it for other services to make sure that their students are well cared for. Um, DeWine wanted to put more money there so that they can actually put money back in the classroom And I hope that stays. The Senate version is taking some of that out and putting yeah. it into to, to charter, or I mean into voucher programs. Uh, and I think we'll see a fight on that point right. uh, that DeWine wants it. It's, he's been pretty committed to health care and children's issues. Yeah, and then if you look at the United Way as well in their new community hub for basic needs, they are requiring 
that agencies that get funded offer wraparound services um, or are willing to work with other agencies to provide those wraparound services. So you can kind of see um, this call to action happening in a bunch of different places. Another way to improve conditions around this region is with more jobs, and maybe the worst kept secret, at least in some circles, is this year has been a study commissioned by four agencies last year to figure out a way to create more jobs. Emily, what are the agencies that commission the study, and what are they trying to do? Um, it's some of the regular players. Uh, if you look, it's... Great Cleveland Partnership, the uh, Fund Cleveland for the Foundation. Economic Future, that kind of thing. Um, but it's really spearheaded by the, the Greater Cleveland Partnership. They were going to announce it at their uh, meeting this week, which... Power issues led to no speeches <laughs> yeah, they, there. <laughs> so Cleveland.com had that. But um, basically, they're looking for the next great area of innovation in, in the greater Cleveland and Northeast Ohio area. Um, in a December meeting, Chris, you asked uh, Joe Roman, the head of the Greater Cleveland Partnership, what does innovation mean in this particular situation? Because you see innovation, but, you know, you never quite know what it means. Um, it could be anything, but it most likely will look at technology, which is something that comes up all the time in conversations around here. There's blockchain. There's stuff that's related to medicine, prosthetics, self-driving cars. There are... Many possibilities out there, but um, they hired, this group hired McKinsey and Company to um, compile a bunch of data and conduct a bunch of interviews um, with small business owners, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders to try and figure out where Cleveland's agencies and civic leaders should send their money and send their attention. Kind of narrow down the field. And one of the things that they insist upon is, unlike a lot of the studies that have been done over the years in Cleveland, this isn't just something that's supposed to reveal data. It's supposed to have very concrete steps mm -hmm. by which everybody can get together, align, and aim for a specific business sector. And I think that people are getting fatigue with this kind of thing. Um, they're tired of hearing, oh, we're going to figure out what's next. Just wait a second. And, and then they get this report with a list of data and, and no direction. Um, they're looking to get this report and set of recommendations done by the end of the year. The initial research is done. We'll see what happens, but there are a lot of leaders behind this. Um, we have the CEOs of University Hospitals and the Cleveland Clinic on the steering committee. There's uh, Beth Mooney from Key Bank. There's uh, Barbara Snyder from Case Western Reserve. I think it's a little let's wait and see what happens here because it's a lot of talk and we haven't seen a lot of action yet. Um, but if they can figure this out, a similar effort produced Jumpstart and BioEnterprise right. uh, um, a little over a decade ago. So, Well, I was going to use the word fatigue and you beat me to <laughs> it. I think we're long past that point and you know, even the names of all those CEOs on these organizations They've been on all the other organizations. Right. Um, I think we probably need a little more Boutros-like <laughs> action in all of this because it just needs to happen. Right. I mean, it's, you know, even studying technology, well, sure, but we've known for 10, 15 years these technologies have been out there, and we've been talking biotech. So I hope it happens. And the GCP made news on another front this week, and no, it wasn't the fact that the power went out on their big annual meeting and they couldn't make speeches. Is plastic bags. What's that about? Um, so Cuyahoga County last month, at the tail end of last month, banned plastic bags. Um, retailers cannot give them away for free. 
and the GCP, um, the largest chamber of commerce in the state, does not like that. Um, they have talked to their retailers and their members, and they say, hey, there's not enough research on this. Um, the paper bags could have a similar environmental impact if we're producing a lot more of those. They cost a lot more. Um and they also uh, just don't want to make life more difficult for local retailers who might have to operate across co county lines. So they're supporting a bill. They submitted written testimony last week um, that was introduced in the House. It's now in committee that would effectively roll back uh, Cuyahoga County's bag ban, um, which brings up another issue with another thing that Ohio residents are kind of fatigued by, uh, the state legislature uh, overruling but the interesting um, thing here, though, is that the business leaders of Cuyahoga County are taking a position diametrically opposed to the political oh, absolutely. leaders of Cuyahoga County, which we don't see that a whole lot. That's a fairly dramatic step. Well, what was interesting is that um, Mary Kilpatrick spoke to the owner of Heinen's about this bag ban, and he said that he was more in favor of a bag tax, which was a previous version of this um, this whole effort, Sonny Simon thinks that uh, the Chamber of Commerce doesn't know what they're talking about, they're ignoring the science, and this whole thing infringes on home rule. So it's it's definitely going head-to-head. -head. It wasn't a unanimous vote at County Council. It was 8-3, um, three Republicans. But it was it, there was a lot of support for the issue this time around. So it's Can interesting I just jump in here? Yeah. This issue... <laughs> Don't we all shop at Aldi where you don't where they don't give you plastic bags and everyone figures it out? What's the problem? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is really bothering me. Bring your own bag or Aldi lets you take your cart to your car, load all your junk up into the car and return the cart. What's the problem? I don't understand. The science is strong. I th this is something that's really gotten under my skin. And how does it how does it tell me Emily, really, what what is the two million dollar extra cost that that I saw cited in the story it's about? It's to produce the paper bags. It does take a lot of money and energy to produce paper bags, reusable um, bags. But, Here's the but, thing. But, but let's face it, that number sell the paper bags. It was a million. I just wish Layla would have listened to the earlier podcast where <laughs> I made the point that the whole problem with the paper, the plastic bag ban is it was supposed to ban single-use plastic bags. There's not a human out there that only uses it to bring their groceries. They wrap right. their dog poop in it. They put their dirty sock shoes in it. Yeah, and that junk it. goes they in the landfill. Well, and but it's it's multiple use, and their argument is we need to get rid of single-use stuff, and I'd say water bottles are a far bigger problem. There are know. studies that show, I believe it's a 2011 study, that um, it takes way longer to negate the environmental impact of a paper bag than a single-use plastic bag because it takes one more use to negate its impact than I think it's three times you would have to use a paper bag and a ton of times that you would have to use a reusable bag in order to negate its environmental impact. Right. Reusable cloth bags. Okay. Thank you, Layla. We need a break. <laughs> when we come back, we wonder, will we ever know what caused our earthquake? You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, 
Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of news by the reporters and editors at cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, Bob Higgs, Rich Exner, and in this segment, reporter Mary Kilpatrick. The earth moved in northeast Ohio this week with an earthquake hitting 4.2 on the Richter scale. That's a bit unusual for the Cleveland area where smaller quakes often centered in Lake Erie are the norm. This one, too, was off in Lake Erie near Lake County. Rich Exner, how unusual was it? Well, the earthquakes do happen, as you point out, but but they tend to be small in Ohio. Uh, we, we've already had like six or seven earthquakes somewhere in Ohio this year, but this might have been the first one that somebody could feel. Um, they, we're not shaking buildings to the point where there's causing damage, but uh, little things move. I got a kick out of uh, I, I, a reader, so I appreciate it, sent a picture. He said he thought that as the waves were up on the other side of the lake in Canada, he sent me a photograph. Maybe the photograph didn't fully illustrate what he'd seen because I really couldn't tell whether it was from an earthquake or perhaps a kayaker had paddled by and created a wave. But there was a wave in the photo. Mary, you were uh, in the newsroom when the quake hit, as were many of us, and I believe you are the only person who actually noticed it. What did you notice? The the ground vibrated. I was sitting at my desk, you know, catching up on emails, and I felt the ground vibrate, and I felt a rumble. And I looked over at Seth Richardson, the politics reporter, and I said, did you feel that? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Um, and then 10 minutes later, we got the report. There was an earthquake, and I was vindicated. So, Have, have you ever um, sensed an earthquake before you grew no. up in the southern part of the country? No, nothing. Never. All right. So, All right. The more amazing thing is you went out and tried to find people who could tell us what caused it. And kind of amazingly, what you got were shoulder shrugs. I mean, you would think someone could say, yes, that's XYZ fault line. But the best you got was some maybes. Yeah. What were they? Yeah, like a lot of maybes. So, I mean, I learned a lot. So, you know, we sit on a bunch of fault lines and some are known and some are unknown. And um, the fault lines, um, pressure builds, you know, for millions of years uh, and sometimes the pressure releases and there's an earthquake. So they can't really tell us why. One expert I spoke with suggested that it could be due to the amount of rain that we've seen um, in Northeast Ohio over the past several months that, you know, the rain could have somehow lubricated the fault lines and, um, you know, sort of allowed them to move around a little. But, you know, another expert was like, no. So we don't really know. These things just kind of happen. Uh, the the seismologist who I spoke with said they've been trying to figure out when and why earthquakes happen for a really long time, and they still don't really know. Well, Rich calculated a couple of weeks ago the weight of all of the extra water that's in Lake Erie. It's two and a half feet above normal. Um, and I forget, Rich, what was it? Some some number with a million zeros after it, right? Like. 50 trillion pounds of water or something. A huge amount. And did you ask, could that be causing it, the pressure of all that water? Yeah, I did. And and the answer that I got was, you know, maybe. But if you (laughs) think about it, um, the the epicenter of this earthquake was somewhere between two kilometers and three kilometers uh, below the the surface of the earth. So if you think about the amount of weight all of that uh, earth and dirt is, and then you factor in the weight of the lake. The lake is kind of like a pond sitting on top of all of this this surface, all of this dirt and earth. So maybe, but, you know, I didn't get really any sort of convincing 
um, you know, theory behind that. Right. So, so the question I have is the, the largest earthquake we've had, say, since World War II was, was back in the mid-'80s. It was about a five. Fortunately or unfortunately, I first bought a house soon after that, and I tossed on an earthquake rider on my insurance. Am I really throwing my money away in Northeast Ohio yes. on an earthquake rider? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the other interesting thing that we found, I did a Facebook Live with uh, with our reporter, Hannah Drown, and we got just an earth-shattering amount of comments from people weighing in. And really, on the east side, they really could feel it. People talked about their china cabinets ratter, uh, shattering or, you know, rattling around. But the one thing that I found interesting was people talking about how their pets were going haywire, either before or after the storm, or, you know, the, the earthquake hit. Um, like, cats were you know, freaking out, dogs were barking, and that's how people kind of figured out that hmm. something was up. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. Right, Bob, it wasn't earth-shaking news, but you covered something pretty interesting about a huge mural that has filled the front of City Hall's council chambers for more than a century. What's up with that? This mural is a stylized depiction of Cleveland and its role in Great Lakes industry. It's called When Men and Minerals Meet. And, and it wasn't originally painted for City Hall. No, it was painted in the 1920s for a bank downtown. Bank is in was in the building that now is where the House of Blues is, and later was donated to the city. It's been hanging in City Council chambers since the early 50s. Um, Bashir Jones is a new new councilman. He's now into his second year of of his first term. Uh, and he raises the issue of race frequently. He wants it to be something people are aware of and to understand that it has had a role in how uh, parts of Cleveland's population have been stuck in poverty just over over long periods of time. And this mural comes into play because he has stood up and said, I don't like that this mural doesn't have a good representation of Cleveland in it. It doesn't look anything like Cleveland looks now. And he's also noted this this stylized thing that looks like Cleveland of a bygone era. There's no Native Americans in it either. And as a result of that, uh, they're going to have a committee that takes a look at art. Didn't they just spend a, a fortune restoring that painting? Yeah, they had spent several thousand dollars. They had a leaky roof in City Hall, and the water was working its way down and dripping on the front of the painting. And is there is there anybody speaking up for keeping it? Because Bashir seems to have a really good point, right? When this when this was put up in City Hall, it probably did more accurately reflect the population of the city, but it has no. It's not even close to representing it today. It's been there for sixty some not years. Even the title of men and minerals, right? Or what, yeah. yeah. So why not? Number of females on council. Well, it's always interesting when he mentions it, and I think part of it is because he knows what the reaction is every time he says, "I don't think this is good, and we got to get rid of it." What's the reaction? There are people on city council, particularly Mike Polensic, who's been there now for forty years, who think they cherish this thing. It's historic in their mind. It's also affixed to the wall. It doesn't come down easily. But it's not original to City Hall. It's not original to City Hall. And I think what Bashir Jones has succeeded in doing is raising the awareness among members of City Council that they need to think about 
better representing well, the city as a whole. One of the, the potential solutions I've heard mentioned is they should bring other artwork into City Hall, but that this is enormous. I mean, that, that council chamber is a huge room, or neatly carved. It's really quite beautiful, but this thing overwhelms it. You could, you could fill the back aisle with all sorts of artwork, and this thing still overwhelms. Right. I mean, this really comes down to a question of, do you take this down or leave it there, right? Right, and I don't think... If push came to shove, I don't think Bashir Jones would say take it down if there were other solutions that they could find. Because hey, it's been there for so long. But you're right, it is huge. It's almost 30 feet wide. Hey, Bob, for somebody who hasn't seen it, like, can you describe what it shows? It, it is a somewhat stark uh, environment. And you have people, you have somebody involved with chemistry, somebody involved with mining in it. Uh, people who represent the, sh- the shipping industry. It's very much the labor kind right. of. A, it's and it's really quite beautiful. It, but but it is not represent or doesn't represent the city even closely anymore. And so uh, it's fascinating that the newcomer bringing in fresh eyes voices what seems pretty obvious. Right. My last conversation with him about it, he was excited at the idea that he and the council president and one other member of council, Kerry McCormick from downtown we're going to put together this look at ways to get other artwork into council chambers and uh, what Bashir said is maybe we can expand this throughout city hall then it should be a place where people can come and feel comfortable and when they see art that makes them think of cleveland that's a good thing so all right across town you had occasion to write a good news story of interest to veterans tell us about the fisher house Fisher houses are donated by a foundation, and they are sort of the VA equivalent to Ronald McDonald houses. They're places where families of veterans who have to travel 50 miles or more for VA treatment can stay free of charge. Uh, they're quite nice. They, the, they dedicated uh, the Fisher House for Greater Cleveland uh, this week. It's two buildings, each with 16 suites. They have common libraries, living rooms, dining rooms. They're, they're nicely decorated. And they're just up the street from the VA. Uh, Cleveland's VA is the third largest one in the country. It handles something toward 115,000 patients a year. They're expecting 1,000 families a year to stay in this thing for free. All right, let's go back to City Hall. Mark, you've been reporting on City Council Member Ken Johnson's expenses for a while now. You learned something new about him this week. Remind us why his expenses have been a focus of your attention, and what did you learn? Well, first of all, Cleveland Council President Kevin Kelly has made good on a promise uh, that he was going to hire an accounting firm to take a look specifically at Ken Johnson and uh, his expenses as well as his colleagues and try to look at their whole system of reimbursement. I don't think this is... Very difficult at all. We need to focus on one person. That's Ken Johnson, because for more, more than 10, 11, 12 years, he's kind of treated the expense account like a parlor game to see each, each month how close he could get to getting on the nose of $1,200, which is the maximum allowable expense, and he's the only one who does that. Um, and each time a door closes, he comes up with new expenses. Uh, this may be the first step of getting some outside scrutiny to that expense. Council has continued to approve expenses that I've argued in columns um, are questionable and would never pass in the private sector because they often lack the itemization that uh, private companies expect their employees. Detail the meals, detail if you're going to ask for mileage reimbursement, I need to know exactly where you drove, if you're going to get gas, 
I need to know how many gallons you purchased. And often Ken leaves all of that out. The biggest issue for Ken Johnson has been that for 11 years, he submitted a single written receipt that said ward services and uh, from a gentleman named uh, Robert Fitzpatrick, who turned out to be a city employee with ties to Ken. And uh, that he accumulated $168,000 in reimbursement over 11 years. That suggests that Ken was paying that out of his pocket. Uh, that has been shut down, and uh, he's now moving things around. So this is a continuing process, but the hiring of an outside firm is making good on a promise that Kevin Kelly made in November. Good. All right. Well, after the break, we're going to be talking about why we're celebrating the River Fire. It's this week in the CLE. Trying to cut through the noise and stay up to date on news that's important in Northeast Ohio can be challenging. We have a small solution, and it's free. It's our weekday newsletter, The Wake Up, which arrives in your email first thing in the morning, meaning you can start your day fully up to date. Join tens of thousands of others who use The Wake Up to be in the know. Sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters. It's this week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm with Laura Johnston, Special Projects Editor and Coordinator of RockTheLake.com, and reporter, reporter Emily Bamforth. They're here to talk about the 50th anniversary of the infamous Cuyahoga River Fire and the national significance of that event. Laura, why do we treat this as an event to celebrate? It's all about the rebirthday of the river, that this was the final fire we've had on the river, and we had more than 13 significant fires uh, since they started keeping track in the 1800s. So this is it. This is after this. The national attention got focused on Cleveland. The EPA was formed the following year. The Clean Water Act came uh, three years later. So people are celebrating the progress that we've made and how we've reinvigorated this river from literally zero fish uh, to more than 60 different species. But isn't it really something that was a disgrace for Cleveland? I mean, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, and we did not look at this as something to celebrate. It was like, man, thank God we don't have that problem here. Well, I don't think the Cuyahoga was the only river that was catching on fire in the 60s. But it it was probably a sense of shame. But the thing is that Cleveland took it and turned it around, and that's what we're celebrating, that we're a place where we made a change, and that this matters. Cuyahoga was declared the river of the year uh, this year, and that's kind of something that went nationwide. New York Times is writing about us. Uh, the week, we're getting all sorts of great national attention for the efforts that we've put in in our environment. I think it's really interesting. I'm a newbie to Cleveland. I've only been here about four to five years, and the river catching on fire was one of the things that I knew before moving exactly. here, living in Cincinnati. But when I moved up here, I saw how proud people were of the river and how much they are proud of the efforts that have happened since the river caught on fire. People tube on it now. People paddle on it now. Lake and river culture is a big part of what people do around here. And that's something that someone from Cincinnati doesn't entirely understand because we have the Ohio River and... and you're not going tubing on that. No, thing. we're not going tubing on that. <laughs> so what are the most significant events that are happening that mark this celebration? So there are literally 300 organizations that have gotten involved and are hosting everything from like conversations and art exhibits to races on the river. So um, next week is going to be a crazy time in Cleveland. I mean, the number of events, it's massive. Um, one of the coolest things is Blazing Paddles, which is a paddleboard kayak um, 
race on the river it, and it'll be uh saturday morning there's going to be something called a cleveland float at 1 p.m where they're just going to try to get a lot of people on floats um any sort uh paddle boards kayaks probably a pink flamingo or two on the river and get a big aerial shot there's a boat parade there's the burning river festival um literally uh there's a cuyahoga50.org site we have plenty of stuff on our site uh there's five days of celebrations called a torch fest that's actually starting at the headwaters I mean, I have lived in um, the Cleveland area since I was four, and I used to paddle on this river in a, in a canoe in my Girl Scout troop, um, and I didn't know all the things that I've learned about this river. It's 100 miles long. We have 22 different watersheds. There's just so many ways to get involved. Uh, Laura, could you talk about some of the educational opportunities? Because I think that what's really interesting about this anniversary is not only like we have a river that's completely reborn and, and that kind of thing, but it's a recognition of how much work there is left to be done, um, and especially around the state as well, who might be able to mimic some of what Cuyahoga has done for their river, um, thinking down in the southeast near Appalachia and and some of the other areas. Yeah, I mean, Case Western Reserve is hosting talks. There are some educational stuff. There's also some really fun stuff. Like they created a Crooked River cocktail that's the official drink of the Cuyahoga River, and they hope that a lot of bars around town will be offering it. Um, but there, you're right. This is when I've talked to a lot of people. This is the pause button. This is where they say, okay, we're celebrating our 50 years and the fact we haven't had another river fire, but here's what we need to work on next. Um, Cuyahoga River is one of 43 rivers in the 80s that were considered um, areas of concern that needed to be worked on. And so they had 10 what they called beneficial use impairments. Like we need to cross these off a list so that we can be a you know, a uh, vibrant river now. So we've crossed three of those off. We have seven more to go. There are things like um, making sure that we don't have beach closures anymore because of um, bacteria, because of uh, sewage overflows. There are things like fish tumors and benthos, which I found out is the organisms at the bottom of the river. So there's a lot of things to work on. And I talked to um, Cuyahoga River Restoration, who's overseen all of this work, um, Jade Goodman there, and also the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, which is really doing a lot of work with this anniversary. And a lot of it is really simple stuff that we can all get involved in. Like if we plant trees, if we keep fertilizer off our lawn, if we use rain barrels, if we uh, pick up the dog poop, all of these things end up going in our river and our lake. And so we've getting rid of, gotten rid of the pollution from the industry. Now we need to look at ourselves more. So what is the actual date of the anniversary? June 22nd. So Saturday is the actual anniversary. Is there any chance somebody will try to, to signify this event by actually lighting the river <laughs> back on if fire? If it happens, we know where to look now, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but right. yes, it was a Sunday morning 50 years ago. That'll do it for this episode of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn. My thanks to Mark Namick, Adam Faris, Emily Bamforth, Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston, Mary Kilpatrick, Rich Exner, Bob Higgs, Jane Cahoon. We'll be back next week with another episode of This Week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.